Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is James Chapel. James is Hunt Family Assistant Professor of History at Duke University, and his first book is coming out this spring, published by Harvard University Press. It's called Catholic Modern, The Challenge of Totalitarianism and the Remaking of the Church. It's a great book about how the Catholic Church came to embrace the modern world in the 20th century. We had a great time talking about it. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I give you James Chapel. James, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. And you've written this book, which is hot off the presses. I think I got my copy about the same time you got your copy. It's forthcoming from it's just Harvard University Press. That's right. Nice little place to publish from. Not bad. Little trade, Not bad. Little trade school in Boston. <laughs> Catholic Modern, The Challenge of Totalitarianism and the Remaking of the Church. Now, I remember – I was reading a couple years ago how like around the turn of the century, which pope was it that had the um, – the encyclical against liberal osmosis, against liberalism, how basically liberalism was one of the great sins, sure. right? Yeah, that was, that was sort of presumed by popes from the beginning of liberalism. And now we've come to a place where you could argue the Catholic Church is one of the largest, if not the largest, NGO that promotes things like religious liberty, <laughs> democracy, democracy, free market capitalism. Um, and, and your book attempts to tell that story, but also it's not the first time the story's been told, but you think the story needs to be tweaked a little bit if it's to be, if, if this story, which is an important and a fascinating one, if it's to be told more accurately. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that you, you did a good job of putting, of laying out the question I'm trying to answer in this book, which is that, you know, a hundred years ago, you get one can imagine different kind of popes, different kind of encyclicals, different sorts of theologians. Since the from the between the French Revolution and I think more or less the Great Depression, Catholics more or less believed that oh, this thing called modernity, this thing called liberalism has been a disaster, um, and they had some quite excellent reasons to think that. But then, yeah, now it's quite different. I mean, of course, you know, Catholics still have a, they pursue certain things. They pursue like anti-abortion, anti-gay marriage, things like that. But they no longer presume that the modern condition of sort of church-state separation, human rights, religious freedom, that this is some kind of disaster. And in fact, as you point out, they often find themselves at the forefront of fighting for those things. And I think that's a really remarkable transformation to take, as you said, one of the biggest NGOs in the world, and even, you might even say, one of the biggest GOs in the world, because, you know, it, it is a, in some ways a political apparatus, um, how did they change so abruptly? And I think relatively quickly. And I think that this question matters a lot for our times. And that was the question that, yeah, got me launched on this book because, you know, I'm not Catholic, but growing up, I had a sense of what the Catholic Church was up to and fighting communism and all these sorts of things. But then when I started studying history, it was just not that long ago that you had the kind of thing you're talking about where Catholics presume, oh, this is all a big catastrophe. And so how did that change? So yeah, you're right. That's, that is the question I'm trying to get at with the book. And you, you also wrote a really moving essay in a, in, in the point, right? I think it was, uh, called a serious house. That's right. That's right. And well, I, I'm not sure how moving it was. That's up to you. It, it is called a serious house. You're right. Yeah, I, I think it was very, I mean, and you talk about this. Can you tell me a little bit? Cause you talk about having a deep church experience, as a young person, and what tradition was that in? Uh, Lutheran. That was uh, sort of Missouri Synod Lutheran in Central Florida. There are so many Missouri Synod Lutherans. It's fascinating because <laughs> it's it's such. I feel like it's one of the biggest dominations with the smallest profiles. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I, mean, I certainly know a lot less about its history than I do about Catholic history. This is probably some kind of historian sin to uh, know more about others than you know about yourself. And you even think of a church like an, a, a conservative evangelical, like sisterish denomination, like the Presbyterian Church in America, which has far fewer members. Mm -hmm. Like I think, I think the Missouri Synod is six or seven times the size of the PCA. But the PCA gets so much, yeah, press. Mm -hmm. And the Missouri Synod is this because is is it like the uh, the Midwestern farmer that loved his wife so much he almost told her 
Uh, you know, the, <laughs> is there something built into the DNA that you keep a low profile in the tradition? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's definitely true that um, growing up, I, I did find that the kind of culture war issues, which were dominating sort of Protestantism in the 80s and 90s, didn't actually have that big of a footprint in my church. It was not about, you know, we're against gay marriage or we're against Bill Clinton or things like that. Those things were surprisingly not brought up. So maybe, maybe, maybe that denomination has kept itself from the front lines. Are you still part of that tradition now? No, I mean, I go, I, I go. Um, I guess one, one could say I go religiously on holidays. <laughs> <laughs> You're a faithful Christmas Easterish. Yeah. And have you? Is it a Lutheran church you go to now, or do you kind of? Oh, I, I actually go more regularly to a Quaker uh, meeting house here in Durham. Um, but I have a you know respectful distance from Missouri Synod Lutheranism. So why study Catholicism? You 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 have the you, you have a church background. Uh, now you're Quaker. Why were I, I mean, it's a very interesting journey to write a book and, and a book that's, uh, I mean, the sweat equity of this thing, you know, footnotes said, this is, this is an undertaking. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and, I, and I'll try to answer that question, but something someone told me once is that, you know, it's, it's right. There's a lot of sweat equity that goes into a book, especially a first book. It's written in the trenches of graduate school. It is a lot of lonely hours in an archive writing something that potentially no one will care about or will ever read. And I, I think if someone told me this, I think it's completely true that your motivations for doing something like that are going to be opaque even to you. And that maybe someday you'll figure it out, but maybe someday, someday you won't. It sort of answers some deep call in an author. And so I don't even, so I find it a challenging question to, to answer. And that was one of the reasons I wrote that piece to the point was trying to get at an answer for myself. And what I sort of arrived at was, you know, when I, when I went to college, I, did start thinking about these big questions about um, sort of religion and modernity. And something about the Catholic Church, but especially the history of the Catholic Church, I was kind of just in awe of how, um, you know, because I had these kind of nihilistic moods in college, and I kind of found some kinship with these sort of old Catholics who were just sort of, I mean, old in the sense of, you know, early 19th century Catholics, who were basically saying, you know, oh, you know, this is terrible. Uh, the world was better way back in the past. And I felt some sympathy with that. And so I guess there was a moment when I, yeah, I saw these people as making some provocative and challenging claims. And then that led me to sort of ask, well, what happened? Why is that particular strand of analysis, which was so omnipresent a hundred years ago, you know, why, what, where is that today? What happened to it? Yeah. I mean, do you know the book, All Things Shining? Uh, it's written by Dreyfus and Kelly. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because they and the subtitle of that book is is reading the classics in a, in a secular age, and they talk about one of the things that is hard, right, is that for most of pre-modern history, there are epic narratives, you know, that form traditions that tell you what it means to be a man or a woman and the significance of work and what it means to be heroic, or if being a heroic is a, is a good thing. You know, if yeah, you're yeah. A, a pagan, in Greco-Roman pagan antiquity, hero is a good thing. Christianity, is it a good thing? Maybe, you know, it, although the, the, the nuance kind of treatment on it are, are all these things. You know, you have these, you, you, don't, you don't have the pressure of having to make up all the resources for meaning. Mm, yeah, yeah. And is that some of what you're trying, I mean, this challenge that maybe these 19th century Catholics point out that that's just a lot of pressure mm -hmm. <laughs> for the average man or woman. And then when you make a whole culture do this, that, I mean, not just the nihilistic type, just anxiety. That's your, there's a lot, it seems. In I mean, I think Stanley yeah. Harawas of, of Duke mm -hmm. uh, doing school, said, right. you know, the thing about traditions is you have the you don't really choose them. Great traditions choose you. You have the feeling they, cho they choose you, yeah. and that becomes harder in modernity, right? To have this feeling that I've been chosen by this tradition because this the story is something like right. You should be able to choose the traditions from some sort of position of autonomy, mm -hmm. right? So that you can be free. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. You know, and I, and I've I've actually and it's that that does sort of adequately summarize where I was when I sort of uh, began this project. And when I, it was, it was something like that. It was something like this kind of, um, Oh, uh, modernity casts us adrift and we are existentially homeless because we've killed God and how did this happen? And so on and so on. And I don't want to say that that is like an adolescent way to feel, although a lot of adolescents do feel that way, but it is no longer the way that I do feel both as a person and as a scholar. And because one thing, 
about the book is I think that when a lot of people think about, like it's called Catholic modern, it's about the way the church becomes modern. This can seem to some people like a uh, kind of paradox because it's often presumed that that's what makes modernity. Oh, it's because we lack these stories and we, or that we don't have these traditions available to us. Um, we've killed God, something like that. And I think that's actually just a complete misreading of what modernity is, what modernity looks like, because you know this world is kind of completely riotous with religion and with traditions and with belonging and things like that. And so what struck me is that I was expecting to find, when I looked at the history of the church and how it evolved, I expected to find and wanted to write a kind of, I don't know, decline and fall narrative of the church used to offer this kind of amazing alternative. I mean, it had all these problems too, but it used to offer this um, robust alternative to modernity. And, you know, why did it give up its soul? That was kind of where I began, you know, when I started thinking about the Catholic church as an undergrad. And I now think about it quite differently. I now imagine that what the church did is something that a lot of religious traditions have done is to confront this modern world, as you described, but really creatively and innovatively. And these churches do, in fact, answer this call that you are referring to, because it does provide meaning to a lot of people. Because one thing that's changed over the course of the 20th century is that the church has, as I described it, become modern in a certain way. Another thing that's changed is it's gotten bigger. I mean, it's not. this is not about an institution that is sort of shrinking and becoming irrelevant as we all become kind of atomized individuals who only care about, you know, our cars or whatever. It's in fact becoming larger as, and it seems like as the process of, you know, if we imagine we're in some kind of modern age, what does that look like? It doesn't mean, yeah, it doesn't mean that we're all these like, you know, um, wailing Nietzscheans. I think it means that we find different kinds of traditions and belongings. I think that's the kind of shift that I went through as through the process of writing this book. Yeah. I mean, this is where, you know, for all the, I've had um, Robert Jones on from PRI a few Mm -hmm. times and and he's great to talk with because he's just, yeah, he's a, he's a demographer, man. And he has interesting things to say about the trends, but what's interesting for the rise of the nuns and the unaffiliated has not, corresponded with a massive spike in atheism or something, no. right? Yeah. That, we've, yeah. that, that people are still, uh, we're, a country like the United States is still a very spiritual, uh, and even probably more religious, religiously participant. People mm-hmm. might not self-ascribe, but they'll show up at services or sure. doing projects with religious communities and things like that. So you, so I feel like where we're at now, the Catholic Church you tell you have on one hand, right, these kind of the paternal group uh, that's sort of uh, faith and family values, and the other that is the fraternal group that's a little more, uh, has more tension with free market capitalism, has some Marxist sensibilities, although mm-hmm. critical of Marxism too. But it, So I feel like as I'm reading this, I'm picturing that the, the, the fruits of this is like first things on the one hand and the Catholic worker movement on the other. Maybe that'd be that'd be a way to translate it into sort of uh, you know American American parlance, and a, and a Catholic worker doesn't does um, emerge from this period. But you're, you're but you're using here some terms from the book that uh, I think you know your your noble listenership might not unless they've already read the book, which, right? You know, thanks for reading, which maybe they won't be familiar with. Segue to the origin of these terms. <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay, thank you. So how we get there? How we get there is like right. So you talk about how there. This is like in the 1920s, right? Like or end of the 20s, early 30s. You have you have Catholics in Europe beginning to instead of critiquing capitalism as the as the you know again consumerism, enlightenment, modernity is this sort of eroding of the human soul. Oh no, actually, the family is really important, mm-hmm. and the degree to which these nation states can make the economy and the socioeconomic structures a place for family flourishing mm-hmm. that's a good thing and and this sort of church is the paternal figure to try to make sure that's shepherded in that direction yeah i think that's a pretty fair way to uh, to um uh summarize one of the main one of the main points of the book and so you are yeah you're, you're really drawing attention to this period in the late 20s and early 30s which i think is totally central and by the way just i think we often one of the kind of revisionist points of the book and one that i don't I don't play up a lot, but is important to me is that I think that a lot of people assume that the really important transition point in the church is Vatican II. 
uh, the Second Vatican Council from the 1960s. Because it's not like it's not like a discovery of mine that the Catholic Church is no longer full of like you know is no longer supporting anti-Semitic policies and the restoration of you know the Bourbon monarchy. It's not like I discovered that. It's a question of how, when, and why the Church transitioned to the one we have now. And I think the, the most common story, I think, is that this is something that um, you have a bunch of sort of, you know, it's a relatively conservative, it's evolving, but it's not until the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s that um, this modernization process happens, and it happens quite quickly. And I think that a lot of the debates in the church are all, are then therefore become about Vatican II. Was it a good thing? Was it a bad thing? And these debates enlist the church into the culture wars whose battlefronts are forged in the 1960s. But I, one of the things that's really struck me as I started looking at the history is that I think that chronology is wrong because if you really study the Catholicism of the 1940s and 1950s, a lot of what happens in the 60s is already there. And so it, the turning point is somewhere else. And so I put it, as you suggest, around the time of the Great Depression and the rise of Nazism. And that seems to me like the really crucial um, period. So, I mean, you want to say, I guess, like Vatican II is less a sort of revolutionary, you know, breaking a revolutionary point as as the sort of finishing of a process that's gone on for decades. Yes, you know, that there's a sort of theological reworking, retooling, reforming that is required because of so much that's happened in that direction already mm-hmm. in, in in the previous decades. It's not the yeah. thing that brings on the change. It's the thing that maybe is doing some theological interpretation, yeah, fr- top down from stuff that's already emerged bottom up, and that and that brings and that, I'm glad I'm glad you put it that way because that brings to to another and I I know that we're kind of circling away from uh, the question of the family which you brought up a second ago I'd love to come back to but I want to put a pin in this too because this is one of the things that came to me as I was researching this book is that you know. We imagine the Catholic Church to be this, uh, I don't want to say we, one often, I, I used to, imagine the Catholic Church as this very sort of authoritarian, hierarchical, maybe even totalitarian institution, which is governed by the Pope with a sort of, you know, iron fist. And one thing that historians have in general done in the past few decades is think about how people who look like titular authority figures, presidents, Stalin, Hitler, these people might not have as much power as you think. And in fact, they were- Donald like, Trump is finding this out exactly, right now. Exactly, exactly. To his frustration. Exactly. You know, like, uh, why um, can't my, where's my, what is that? Where's my Roy Cohn? Right, I've never right, heard right. somebody make a favorable reference publicly to Roy Cohn. Like, right, exactly. Right, right, right. Yeah. I, I, Jeff Sessions, why aren't you more like Roy Cohn? Yeah, 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 <laughs> right. So yeah, so there's, there's, there's this kind of deep state phenomenon. Um, and I found that these figures that- um had seemed so, I think, oh, I think had been overestimated in Catholic history, people like popes and uh, popes and bishops. I mean, obviously, they're super important. Obviously, it would be silly to imagine they don't matter. But one thing I found was that if you're thinking about conceptual innovation of the church, which is what, which is what I'm trying to do, is like, how does the meaning of the church and of the faith evolve? A surprising amount of that energy comes, I think, from the laity. Um, which in, in Catholic parlance would mean people who are not ordained into the church, which I think is pretty surprising, especially it's the kind of thing that for me as a non-Catholic and as a historian did not seem to me surprising because historians tend to think that institutional change, at least largely, is driven from below. Um, but it, it flies in the face of how Catholics often imagine their own institution works. And it struck me that you know if you think about uh, theological innovations of Vatican II, how many of those come out of lay Catholic circles from earlier decades? I think a surprising number. So, yeah, so that, that that's part of the thing that I want to do with this do with this book too is say, you know, what's happening amongst lay Catholics really matters. It's not it's not just oh, what's Francis gonna do? As though he has sort of um, absolute control over this church. It's a question also of you know, of what are the laity going to do? How are they going to shape for themselves what the church means in this new century? Uh, do you think one big difference in later modernity is media? I mean, you think about the kind of influence John Paul II has or Francis does now. Benedict less so. And maybe Benedict points out who's not maybe well suited for the role in the era of TV and social uh-huh. media because he's an old – I mean, I, and I – 
love Bennett's writings and read them all the time because theologically I think he's been incredibly helpful in a lot of things uh, ecumenically. But, but you know, it seems like John Paul and Francis, those guys were made for TV popes. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, they are they exert a kind of influence that may have been harder to exert mm-hmm. before definitely the media landscape shifted. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that that's one of the most striking things if you if you look back before. Uh, especially before John Paul II, and especially if you go back in the early 20th century, the idea of the Pope as a sort of, um, yeah, media icon going around in his sort of Pope mobile. I mean, of course, he's very, always very beloved. I mean, when, a, when the Pope would go somewhere, he would be greeted by adoring crowds. I mean, that kind of thing is not new. But the idea of the Pope as sort of global celebrity up there was kind of, um, you know, Bono and the Dalai Lama. I go, that sounds very sacrilegious, but that he would belong in that category, a kind of telegenic Pope. Yeah, you're right. It's a, it's a very kind of novel thing. And I think I, one point I think you're making, which I think is, is um, quite perceptive is to say that living in that moment, living in the moment when we are getting, um, seeing Pope Francis's retweets might lead us to by one of the things why we overestimate the role of the papacy in the past, because now it's just so obvious and so present in a way that it was not always. That's one of the things that, so um, this gets back to the kind of significance of the laity. A lot of Catholic historians will look at these things that the Pope writes are called encyclicals, which are basically letters to his bishops and use them as a sort of the main source to understand the development of the church. But if you go back and actually look at sort of you know, how Catholics understood the church and look at sort of their newspapers, their parish magazines, things like that. Those things aren't really that frequently discussed. Maybe if it's something explosive, but, you know, lay Catholics have their own things going on and that the, the Pope intervenes and doesn't. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And I think of like, it's interesting because you think of like uh, Joe Biden on the one hand, explaining why, well, Aquinas on abortion, or th- you know, like kind of, you yeah. know, uh, and then you have like, Rick Santorum and Jeb Bush saying that, well, the uh, the Pope should st- stick to doctrine and moral teaching and not climate change. Uh-huh. As if the Pope didn't think moral teaching when he's right, talking exactly. about climate change. But, yeah, exactly. But you, yeah. you do have these sort of – I mean America – I'm sure it's probably all over the West. But America seems to accentuate, right, cafeteria Catholicism mm. <laughs> like, you know, writ large, right? Yeah, I'm not. Well, you know what? I'm hes- I'm hesitant to uh, I'm hesitant to make remarks on it because it's so sort of controversial. Um, but you're right. There's a way in which, and, and actually, one thing that changed the course of the book. I mean, historians take a long time to write books. I mean, the books are a product of history too. And Francis was elected while I was writing this book, and I think that Laudato Si, his his text on climate change, is this I think quite amazing document. And you have a figure with the ear of a billion people saying quite remarkable things about climate change and citing science and saying it's real and saying we have to really change the way we live in order to combat climate change. It's this sort of remarkable thing. But it also, it has a long history in sort of social Catholic teaching. So if you look at the footnotes to Laudato Si, it, it, it's a lot of footnotes to stuff from the period I'm talking about. But Catholics have been thinking about political economy and nature and consumerism and all these things for a very long time. So yeah, so I guess that's one of the things I hope the book does is put something like Laudato Si in context, because this is not, you know, I think that we're going to live through, you know, moments, a sort of global crisis in the next few decades in which the church is going to be intervening, involving itself. And I think it's important that we recognize that this isn't just Pope Francis or whoever like waking up one morning and saying whatever he thinks, that he, this has a history. And more importantly, it's not a history that goes back to Aquinas or to Christ or something like that. I mean, one of the big things I want to say in this book is that the church responded quite creatively and innovatively to the challenges of the 20th century, just like the American state did, just like a lot, just like the Coca-Cola Corporation did, just like a lot of institutions did. And so I think that we should sort of see what Francis and his successors are doing kind of in that light. Yeah. And it's, it's an interesting like comparison. If you look at the Orthodox churches mm. and, and, and their relation to modernity, probably not as innovative. I mean, you know, it's getting there now. I mean, there, every church involves, but I mean, it, it seems like it would be tough to, to, to well, you can, there's just not a similar story. Like, yeah. you know, it, it's really different. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm reluctant to speak about it because I'm not, I don't have 
expertise there. But I, I do think that if you look, you know, at the Catholic Church sort of comparatively, it and it's interesting because we have this idea of it, and it's not a wrong idea, but it of being so sort of stodgy and backwards and things like that, which it, it you know, in certain ways, it certainly is. But the way one thing that the, that I found that was really remarkable is that if you look at how Catholics talk about the world in the 1940s versus how they talk about it in the 1920s, it's changed completely, like pretty quickly. Catholics are able to evolve like quite quickly. And, and, so, and that, that also, that, that, so the, the point is not only to say, like one of the points is, I think the tools that are forged in this moment from the 30s are still with us today, but it's also to make a more meta point about how the church could change again. And that it, we could be on the forefront of another kind of innovation. Like the church as we know it, the way the church grapples with questions of politics and economics and climate, you know, don't go back to Christ. I think they really go back not very far. And so that, that makes us rethink what the kind of role of the church, I think. And you have two back-to-back chapters, both telling a story from 1929 to 1944, right? One is the anti-communist paternal mm-hmm. movement in the church, and the other is the anti-fascist uh, uh, fraternal movement. Yeah, yeah. It, so these things grow up alongside of each other, right? With really different relationships yes. Yes. to Marxist thought. And how could you say a little bit about their interaction with each other? Yeah, yeah. At the time, as they're evolving together. Yeah. Sure. And and, for, and first, I think that because I think that um, I took us off course when you asked me this question earlier, just to sort of define those terms for sort of the uh, listenership. Right. Um, so, you know, I make this argument that I make this argument, as I've, I've kind of hinted at before, that basically around 1930, the question Catholics are trying to answer changes. And so, you know, I'm an intellectual historian. So one thing we do um I think one thing we do quite interestingly, and what what makes the best intellectual history, history of ideas, it's not so much the thinking about how answers change or how like you know theology has changed, but how just questions change, how people at different times are trying to answer different questions. And I think up until the late 1920s, the question Catholics are trying to answer is how can we overturn the modern condition? And I think after 1930, around after the Great Depression, for reasons I get into in the book and don't have to get into here, there's a new question which is the question the Catholics ask today, but it's how can we shape modernity in a way that is acceptable to us as Catholics? You know, we're no longer trying to install some kind of monarch or throw in an altar alliance or whatever. We're fine with sort of secular nation states and democracies and parliaments and all these things. The question is how can we shape them in a way that's compatible with the faith? And so, yeah, so one of the big arguments in the book is that this happens, you know, at a different time than people thought, not in the 60s, but in the 30s. And the other big argument in the book is that this happens in two really different ways. And I think this helps us to understand the kind of camps in the church to this day. One of those ways, and um, I'll, 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 I'll bring this up, I, know, I feel like I've been talking for a while, I'll, I'll sort of outline what I think this is, I and mean, you might have some follow-up questions about it, because in some ways to me, it's the most surprising thing of the church. I, I, I in, or in my research anyway, as I was going back and reading all this stuff and from the 20s through the 60s, and I had this moment of realization of like, wow, before the 1930s, Catholics don't care about the family nearly as much as they do after. And that's not to say they didn't care about the family. They did. They always cared about the family. But there's a moment at which it becomes central. The way it's so obvious to us now, of course, Catholics care about the family. But that's a historical phenomenon. They start caring about the family really intensely at this moment. And I think that's related to this process I'm talking about, about how Catholics become modern. So if the question is, how can we shape modernity? What does modernity have to do for us? The main answer Catholics come up with is, well, so long as these secular societies protect the family, like we're, we're fine. And that has that means lots of things. That means uh, legislation, uh, legislation against abortion and divorce and homosexuality. It means a welfare state. It means education. Uh, it means lots of different things. But the, the big question is, can family values and the health of the family be secured? And I think that is underlies so much of the logic of Catholic moral reflection and political action since the 1930s. Um, and yeah, it was really striking to me to realize like, oh yeah, 
it didn't really, they didn't think of it that way before. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Stephen Rowe, Ben Crosby, John Schneider, Steve Lipless, and Charlotte Donlin. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. So this idea of like family values, this is not some sort of a ancient biblical concept as far as like, as it's translated. It's a pretty modern, the way the church, the way we think about the church as pro-family today is a pretty modern development. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, I mean, it, it, there are these things like, of course, you know, you, you look at, if you look in scripture, you can find, um, you can, you can find things that are about probably seem to be about abortion or about homosexuality or gay marriage or something like that. But it's definitely not true that in scripture or even in, for much of the history of the church, that these issues have the kind of centrality that they do for Catholics later. And I think it's often believed that the reason that this changes is because of, this is one of the, why it matters, I think, to reframe this from the 60s to the 30s. I think it's quite often believed that Catholics start caring about these a lot because like the world goes haywire and um, the sexual revolution and contraception and all these kinds of things. And so Catholics have no choice but to focus on them. And I think that's not right because Catholics made that choice earlier. They made it more in the 30s. And I think they're doing it for a different reason. I think they're doing it because they have this new question they're asking of how can we shape secular modernity? What does this have to have? And a lot of them decide, for some reasons I get into, that, yeah, let's focus on the family. They've already made that choice by the time the 60s rolls around. It's interesting because I wonder how how much that is just subconsciously read through at least in American in the American context, through the story of evangelical Protestants, which yeah. does get much more conservative post the sixties. I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. it, I, you can find like before the early seventies, most evangelicals didn't think abortion was that big of a deal. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it, it was it, all of a sudden that the moral majority that sh- shifted like overnight. So I wonder yeah. how often we just sort of read that story yeah. a- into the Catholic story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's probably right. I mean, I think that thinking about the Catholic Church from an American perspective, right? We assume that, and in fact, it's interesting that this has been one of the other things that we assume to be true, uh, that we kind of forget how recent it is, is the fact that Catholics and Protestants get along, like in this country, in Europe, and other places. And this is quite a a recent phenomenon. It does not have a very deep roots. Uh, You know, after World War II, you can find best-selling books in America that are about, oh, you know, the, the horrors of the Catholic Church, and then think about the, what JFK has to go through. Um, and I think you're completely right to say this kind of alliance about the family issue is one of the things that kind of kind of sutures them, that both traditions, maybe for their own reasons, have decided, like, oh, we're going to stake our claim on the family on sexual ethics. And they're able to find common ground there in a way they couldn't over things like maybe education or other issues like that like that and people like mike huckabee and other evangelicals you know it just vociferously defending the catholic church in the obamacare debate around around uh, contraception and birth control stuff and convictions that those evangelicals probably don't even share 
but really see it as, hey, we're, we're in it together, you know, yeah. with your religious liberty and ours. I mean, it's uh-huh. a very interesting, I mean, the kind of solidarity on those sorts of issues is fascinating. Yeah. And, and one of the other things that the book does, and one of the things that surprised me is that this, um, and what you're getting at is that the story of, you know, because one of the big uh, issues, at least in, I mean, European historian in Europe is, you know, confessional conflict has been this very destabilizing and violent phenomenon. And in some ways, it's like a very good thing. I mean, obviously, it's a good thing that Catholics and Protestants are no longer, you know, butchering one another. But why did that transition happen? Did it happen because, oh, I mean, everybody decided to kind of get along, that there was a kind of um, learning and a, a learning process of mutual toleration or something like that. And I think that's not right. I think that, in fact, they ally over specific issues for things that they want. And so one thing I found is that... Um, you know, so this is most in my in my sort of the book is mainly about France, Germany, and Austria, and Germany is the one that has this kind of interconfessional um, issue, and there's been Catholic Protestant tension in Germany, you know, forever. And I think, and one of the things I find and argue in the book is that it's really interestingly in the National Socialist period in the 1930s that Catholics and Protestants start to get along quite a bit better. Is it because they have agreed to like, um, you know, march forward into democracy and progress together? No, it's because they've agreed to collaborate with national socialism together. And so it's a little bit of a darker story than we might presume. Yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting, too, that, you know, later you talk in the book about the birth of Christian democracy. And you have this great passage where you say, um, uh, Christian, uh, Christian Democrats understood the family to be a space of consumption, love, and even sexual satisfaction. This account of the consuming family allowed Catholics to square their long-standing suspicion of consumer culture and economic growth with the realities of life in the consumerist 1950s. They remained as critical as ever of consumerism or materialism, understood as the hedonist individual's pursuit of her own pleasure at the expense of her community. But by imagining the agent of consumption to be the happy family instead of the depraved individual, Catholics were able to legitimate the New York of prosperity, consumption, and economic growth. That's a fascinating summation of a, of a big shift, yeah, right? Yeah, very big shift. I feel like, and I, and I talked about this kind of light bulb that went off when I thought, oh, I mean, the family has to be central to this story. It helped me solve another puzzle. And one of the ones that it goes back to like how the dilemma I talked about at the very beginning of our conversation. Another, another way to, to, to frame what motivated this project is, how could it be that the Catholic Church made peace with capitalism? Like, it, it, that, that's too simple a way to put it, and many can- not even just make peace. I mean, you think of now, the, like, no, I mean, it's funny because yeah, yeah. Most, of the, most of the people that are, are, are the vigorous defenders that are religious economists stuff, like, no, are Catholics. Yeah. Uh, it's not Protestants, today, mm-hmm. at least in the English-speaking world. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and there's there's always been a counter-tradition, and there still are, of course. Like, Francis would not call himself a great apologist for capitalism. But there's a way in which, for most of, you know, since the origins of capitalism, wherever, one's, wherever one wants to date that, the church traditionally has said, oh, no, this is horrible. I mean, this is a, this is a heretical way to organize an economic system. And that is no longer, you know, said so frequently. And how did that happen? And I think that this focus on the family helps us to understand because if you look back to, and this again, this is a everything I say should be taken a little bit with a grain of grain of salt because I'm a European historian. It might look different in America, it might look different in Latin America. But if you look in Europe at when That's not how you sell books, man. That's not right. okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> no grains of salt. No true, grains of salt. That, that's exactly. Why, that's why Europe left the title of the book. Um so uh but if you think, look back to when Catholics are really grappling with the onset of sort of consumer society, this happens not really until after. And if you look at the 1920s, in the 1920s, you get, you get a lot of what looks to us like consumer society. You know, there are cars and movies and things like that. And Catholics are basically like, you know, this is not the society we want. Um, this changes so much. The, the situation after World War II is totally different. And why? Because they think about consumption in a different way. They now imagine that consumption is this thing that's going to make healthy, happy families. And this allows them to make peace, just like just like a focus on the family allowed them to make peace with kind of the secular state, because we no longer need a Catholic state. All we need is a state that's going to protect the family. It allows them to make peace with a consumer society, because they can say, well, I guess consumption and economic growth and all this stuff are good, because at least it's possible to imagine them as supporting 
the family. I mean, they, and they imagine like a car, they don't imagine that cars are going to be for, you know, kids to go out with their, uh, their girlfriends and do things that require them to get abortions. I mean, they, they imagine that what a good car is for is to like drive your kids to school and go on a trip or something like that. I mean, there's, there's a way in which if you look at Catholic popular culture in this period, they take this scary thing of mass consumption and they make it a safe thing by saying it's family friendly. This is like, what did, what did uh, the one Pope say when they were going to canonize Aquinas? And they said, what about the miracles? They said, you just have to look on every page of the Summa. But, but uh, you had yeah. this thing with, with, with Aquinas, right? Or Aristotle is looked at as heretical because of certain things in the metaphysics. And he, he takes that which is looked at as heretical and incorporates it and makes it the standard for orthodoxy. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems like you have a similar movement with the state and capitalist consumption in the, in the 20th century. Yeah. Yeah. And I definitely, and I'm not really a historian of the church before 1900, but this, this, this is not, I don't want to give the sense that like, Oh, you know, between Constantine and 1930, the church is basically the same. I think the church is always evolving and it evolves in all sorts of different ways. Um, and so what I'm talking about in the book is not like the shift, like the time the church changed. I think it's a big change, and it's the first time the church grapples with what we might call modernity in a in a constructive way. But it's changed in all sorts of ways before that. And like, as I guess that gets back to the point I, was, I wanted to make before is um, is that it's not like you know the church is one way, and then there's this big shift, and now it's another way forever. Like it will probably keep changing. Yeah, certainly. And do do you think today? I mean, would you would you put Francis more in that fraternal? Yeah, yeah, fascist critique movement. Yeah, rather than I mean, is it fair? I mean, would you? I mean, I think you do mention John Paul as sort of the paternal um, mm-hmm. anti, and and then Benedict would probably be there too, right? I mean, yeah, I think so. And so and so, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Francis is, is it's so interesting because John Paul and Benedict both, in a way, come out of the story that I told. I mean, they're both they both actually appear in the book organically before they become popes because they are very active sort of theologians. They're both obviously extremely brilliant men. They're, they're writing about all the sort of issues of the day. And Francis is someone different. I mean, he comes, he comes a little bit from outside and I, but I do think to get to your question that he utilizes some of the resources that are forged by these figures I talk about um, from the thirties. And so to get back and this is, this is uh, summarizing another big argument of the book. Well, I talked about before, I call them sort of paternal Catholics. And there are ones who, and I think this is the mainstream tradition. And when they make this decision, like, oh, we have to figure out how to be modern, they're going to say, we're going to focus on the family. There are a lot of problems with that. You know, it's, and, and what, I, I don't want to cast aspersions on this tradition, which turns out is actually very popular. It does a lot of good work. It um, underwrites a lot of sort of welfare state legislation in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Right, because the U.S. Catholic um, bishops, right, even before Roosevelt, are calling sure. for universal yeah. health care in the United States, sure. right? Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. very so you edgy. Can, you can build some, like, robust calls for social legislation on a sort of family-friendly approach. And it has some blind spots, too. The big one is about race. And another one is about class. And so these people who are making this big turn in the 30s, you know, one thing that happens to be true about them is that as they care about the family, they care about a great deal. What they don't care about is the plight of the Jews. And it's, you know, one of, one of the kind of uh, tragedies or um, embarrassments of the church in this period is that, you know, through the thirties and into the Holocaust, how little concern there is amongst European Catholics for the Jews. And I think that one of, one of the things the book tries to say is this isn't because, although there might, for surely for some, it has these psychological causes, but at the conceptual level, this isn't because Catholics are still committed to this idea of Jews as Christ killers and things like that. I found that surprisingly infrequently in the sources. I think it's actually because they've made a choice about what it is we are going to care about, and it's this set of issues and not that one. And is this sort of the chaplain role to the state where you, where – you know, I mean, it's tough to be a chaplain and a prophet at the same time, right? Like, yeah. Like, so when you yeah. become, you know, those sort of roles, one's critical, one's sort of at least implicitly blessing the thing, even though you might That's offer right. it some spiritual direction and care. But so, so you wind up wanting the best for the citizens mm-hmm. in the system and it to be generous. And it, and it, but you don't wind up offering meta critiques yeah. of the system. You're trying right. to be that's the chaplain. A, that's a great way to put it. And just like as today, you have, you know, a lot of, Catholics and non-Catholics sort of 
uh, blessing the system and nibbling about the edges, you also get people, Catholics and non-Catholics, making these kind of more meta critiques. And you get that in the 30s too. And so one of the um, things I try to do with the book is say there's always been an alternative to this sort of family-friendly kind of Catholicism. Not to say they're family-unfriendly. There's always been an alternative form of Catholicism that has not placed the family at the center. And so one thing that seems to be true, if you look, go back and look at most of the figures I just talked about, many of them make sort of unfortunate common cause with some kind of fascists or authoritarians in the name of anti-communism, because communism is seen as the great family destructive force of the 20th century. And, I think this is, and this is this is parallels like governments sure. like the United States, right? Exactly. We did the same thing. Took up cause with fascists because exactly. at least they're not yeah, communists. Exactly. So I mean, well, I think I think in some ways the big story of the 20th century Catholic churches. They decide they're going to ally with the family against communists, and anyone who wants to do that, we will, you know, make our peace with you. And that could be the American state, and that could be the Nazi state, um, and or that could be the Christian democratic state. It takes lots of different forms, but a number of Catholics are not willing to make that claim. And so th- there's a chapter in the book that narrates this kind of international network of Catholics who do not place either the family or anti-communism at the center of their vision. They, in fact, place a much broader account of social justice at, and racial justice at the center of their vision, and it's tied not with anti-communism, but with anti-fascism. And so at this moment that I think is so crucial, the moment when the church is figuring out how it's going to be modern, there is this dissident tradition from the beginning that says, look, if we focus too much on the family, that's going to be dangerous. It's going to bring us into dangerous waters. We have to hold on to the fact that the Catholic tradition commits us to this much broader account a sort of social renewal, social justice, things like that. Um, and this is a small tradition. It's a relatively dissonant tradition. Um, but it does. It's relatively, and you mentioned the Catholic worker. It has its pockets. Francis might be trying to like make it the common sense of the church. Um, I think after World War II, there are lots of Catholics that are like this. So the Catholic church, so this is, I guess, related to the point I was making earlier about how we should not... We're, we're making a mistake if we think about it as a kind of monolithic top-down organization. We're also making a mistake if we view like our assumptions about what Catholics care about, abortion, gay marriage, etc. There have always been other traditions, other kinds of Catholicism pushing different sorts of agendas. And do you think there's a contemporary sort of – I mean what, what we seem to be, at least in, in North America and Western Europe, debating right now is the sort of populism, nationalist, Brexit, Trump. Yeah, yeah, view of the world versus a more globalist view of the world, and you almost still see this, right? Because Francis seems to come down squarely with the globalists. Yes, in a way, and yeah. a lot of a lot of the traditionalist bishops, at least in this country, seem to sound seem to uh, well, they're not obviously as nationalist as Donald Trump, but they're not as they're not as globalist as Francis. I mean, there's mm. not the passion mm-hmm. for a, a global community kind of in it together. Yeah, and some of those Catholic bishops here, some of them. That's right. That's right. And I don't want to comment on the contemporary church, not, not because I don't want to, but because I don't probably know enough about it. But I, I do think I do what I sort of pay attention to what's happening in sort of Catholic circles, debates over the Catholic church, um, you know, rust out that and people like that are always sort of thinking about what is the kind of church, what's happened to it. The kind of strategies that I see from the 1930s, I do see today. And so if you look at some things Francis says, he gives these interviews where He's, one thing that's interesting is that he's surprisingly unwilling to, at least so far, budge sort of doctrinally about these family issues. And that's true of the anti-fascist Catholics in the 30s, too. They're not saying, oh, we think you should have gay marriage. I mean, they're not, that, that's, not, that's not their position. What they say is everyone is a sinner, and we, ha- we as Catholics have a choice about what to accentuate and what not to. And what Francis says is, Yes, I, I agree. I you know hold the traditional teachings about abortion, same-sex marriage, etc. But we do not have to talk about it all the time. We don't have to focus on it. Yeah, this is like when they say, "What about what about gay Christians?" And he says, "Who am I to judge?" Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, so I think I think he is reminding us of the possibilities for the church after it is modernized. Because, you know, what, what's not on the table for Francis, and this is, you know, just a reminder of like how far the church has come in 100 years, is, oh my gosh, we have to return to, uh, wh- why is global warming happening? It's because um, societies have given up on God and we have to like form all these church-state alliances and repress Protestants and Jews. I mean, that would have been the answer 100 years ago. And, you know, for Francis, that is completely off the table. 
And as you're saying, I mean, so in a way, what my book does is kind of provide the background to that debate you're talking about, which that debate would have been illegible 100 years ago between, like, is it, should we focus on the family? Should we focus on social renewal and consumption? Like, that's not what people are talking about 100 years ago. It's really interesting. In your piece in The Point, you, you talk about new directions in your research, and you talk about um, Jacques Maritain, who is, is kind of one of the main protagonists in the book, and you see, seldom read by Protestants or secular scholars, he's one of the most influential Catholic thinkers of the previous century. And his biography neatly reverses the modernist Bildungsroman we find in Joyce. If James Joyce traveled through the church to arrive at a form of religiously literate secularism, Maritain traveled through secularism to arrive at the church. Yeah. Born in, born in 1882, he was raised to respect the secular values of the French Republic. In his early 20s, he suffered a crisis of confidence. Um, he and his wife rise and made a suicide pact, promising to shuffle from this mortal coil if they could not discover a meaning in life. They avoided this fate by converting to Catholicism. That's beautifully written, and it's a beautiful story where I love how you sort of cast him over against James Joyce, mm-hmm. right? right? Who, who is, you know, I mean, in the opening of Ulysses, right, is the is this um, mirror and the and the and the and the the razor where he's yeah, yeah. stately plump mulligan yeah and he kind of you know makes a sign of the cross and it's like that means the it basically Catholicism is narcissism and masochism uh-huh. like, right exactly kind of, great point yeah. <laughs> right? it's very like so it's a beautiful thing I mean I wonder does the does the church that had that vitality for Maritain to keeping his wife alive and you know, it, it gave them a vision for human flourishing. I mean, do, do we see that today as much? I mean, like, mm. I, I'm trying to think of figures like this. Yes. You know, that, that, that are really influential intellectuals who come up in a kind of secular, modern yeah. way of life yeah. and find their salvation in the church. I mean, I can think of tons of people that start the other way. Sure. Uh, yeah, that yeah, started yeah. the church and, 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 and kind of become alumni. Uh-huh. Out. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's a really, I mean, in a way, this is more your world than mine. Like, I wonder what is, you know, what is behind that? Because when Maritain makes that move, and so, you know, and this gets back to something we, we talked about at the very beginning, where I think that we have this idea of with the modern, and specifically in this case with modernism, we have a moment when people are realizing we live in a world without God, and what are we going to do? And I just think that's a total misreading of the situation. Lots of people make the exact opposite claim. At, the, at that time, uh, T.S. Eliot and, you know, people who realize, oh, G.K. Chesterton, oh, you're making a big mistake. In fact, we're going to travel through this the other way and rediscover God. And that's happening all the time amongst intellectuals and artists in the early 20th century. You know, basically, you know, there are like jokes about it in 1920s France that, you know, any kind of atheist intellectual just sort of like pass Jacques Bayertown in the street and convert to Catholicism. It's just happening all the time. And I wonder what it says about the contemporary moment when that seems less likely to happen, if in fact it's true. I mean, so this is the water you swim in. I wonder what you think. Well, I mean, I wonder how much this has to do with the fact that, A, like, I had a guy, a Jewish scholar on the podcast a few weeks ago, Chaim, uh, uh, Simon, and he said that he always worries when there's a religious and a secular party. Huh. And so it's getting such that, like, if you watch Fox News, even the atheists like Greg Gutfield, uh, the ir- irreligious, agnostic, what atheist, very irreligious, self-consciously it's always defending absolutes and religion and morality and you look at you know uh the religious people on msnbc are shy about talking about faith very often you know so so it winds up being in this place where you almost have to be what so i wonder how much just the polarity of that mm. makes it, it makes for a lack of robustness like i mean because you know maritain finds a big story that's not very tribal yeah, yeah. And, and it seems like that that rather than uh, kind of offering a prophetic critique or uh, a reimagined way of, of viewing our common life together. Often religion is just domesticated into the tribal. Yeah, that's right. interesting. Yeah. And the other thing I was thinking about when you were speaking was that when Maritain is doing this, there is a real sense amongst Catholics that sort of religion is under assault and that it does provide um, a completely different way of thinking about the world that you can only access if you convert. And that seems to me less. I mean, he's in he's in Third Republic France. He's in he's in a place where separation of church and state has just happened. Where, in a way, the kind of supposed war on religion that we you know is conjured now seemed much more real 
And I wonder if now there's a situation where, you know, it's so, at least we're talking about the United States now, where it seems so transparent that that's not the case, that it's very hard to imagine, uh, you know, I don't know, that where religion is so clearly dominant in the public sphere, that maybe maybe it doesn't have the kind of contrarian, um, you know, je ne sais quoi, that it did 100 years ago, maybe. Yeah, my, yeah, my friends in England, they're British, so, you know, it's interesting here. Like in England, you have an established church, and yet people just don't talk about their religion. Even someone like Tony Blair, who was very religious, yeah. just didn't talk about that in, in elections. Yeah. I mean, we're uh-huh. hearing almost forced to talk about it. You, you, yeah. you know, it's an interesting dynamic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder if that explains a little bit the. Um, yeah, I mean, I felt, I felt, I, you know, at the beginning of his interview, I felt a little. Uh, I don't know what what the word is. It's uncomfortable for an, an academic in 2018 to sort of talk about like, oh, what church he or she goes to. And so it's just a weird thing because I think we assume such a secularity of knowledge production. And maybe that's some kind of overreaction to the saturation of the public sphere with religion. Yeah, and it is interesting because you talk in your piece, in your piece in The Point about how growing up, it, your Lutheran church was a place where there was real, uh, uh, there was people interculturally talking about big issues and, and seeking transcendence yeah. and talking about real pro- social problems and that and that's hard i think to find if you're not in a in a religious institution i mean there's studies out now right for in america for whites whether or not you're part of a church or synagogue has a huge impact on income mm-hmm. and how you view the world like optimist pessimist right track wrong track yeah yeah, yeah. so th- so this it's it's interesting that 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 this i think there's probably not a lot of time enough time thought about the role institutions like that play in human mm-hmm. fur- flourishing in public life. Yeah. And I think, and I think there is a, I have a, a, a lot of thoughts about that. I know they were kind of maybe running short on time, but you know, I think that it is, um, scholars often, I mean, I have a, I have a pet theory that basically universities are completely atomized places. And so we imagine that the rest of the world must be like universities. And I think that that's like complete, you know, uh, solipsism. And in fact, the world is much full is, is, is quite full of the kinds of institutions that take moral questions quite seriously. And yeah, I think that, I mean, I think that it's sometimes hard to see that uh, from within the university. And I don't want to give the impression either now or like, you know, I was not trying to in the point piece that, you know, uh, I'm some kind of, you know, saying only religion can save us or something like that, that we have to be part of religious institutions. I just making a more analytical point that religious institutions for an immense number of people, and maybe even a growing number of people, do provide access and answers to the questions that we often assume that in this modern condition don't have answers and we're all so aimless or whatever. But that in you know in our cities and in our towns, religions are are doing that work in a way that I think that we maybe you know in the university should be more cognizant of um, because we could the university could provide more of a, a secular version of that. Uh, but I think, you know, often does not. Yeah, it's really interesting because as I was thinking and reading your book and thinking about the just the accommodation or an adaptation of the faith for modernity, there's a guy I've been reading a lot lately, Tomas Halicek, uh priest, but he was actually part of the underground church. Like he was, the fact that he was uh, friends with Vaclav Havel, he couldn't get into the state seminary so he had to be like huh. you know, so he had to so he was a psychoanalyst but an undercover priest basically like he was like they, they would fly scholars in to teach the se- seminars like charles taylor and walter cast all these people were flying into this underground seminary they were but um he's written three books and his most recent one was i want you to be on the god of love but he says this i was thinking about the sort of nietzsche and the nihilism he says god is dead that sentence uttered at the end of the 19th century continued to fascinate for the next hundred years Maybe it was not only a sentence about God and against God, but also one containing something of God's message to us. A God who has not endured death is not, is not truly living. A faith that does not undergo Good Friday cannot attain the fullness of Easter. Crises of faith, both personal and in the histories of culture, are an important part of the history of faith, of our communication with God who is concealed Mm. and returns again again. to those who do not stop waiting for the unique and eternal word to speak to them once more. And I think is that sort of the next sort of adaptation to the sort of postmodern world we live in, you know, the heirs of Nietzsche. Thinking like that, where he's able to kind of take the God is dead stuff up into 
the faith of the living. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I guess that gets into yeah, quite theological waters. But it's, it's, it's interesting. It always has struck me that uh, you know Nietzsche's account that God is dead is in some ways quite like you know orthodox theology. I mean, he does die, and then in order to rise again, the idea of killing a god it seems like a very Christian idea. It's actually first said in German in, in a in him Luther wrote, I think. Oh, and then, yeah, and, that. And, then he, that. and then Hegel picks up on it, and then Nietzsche kind of picks up from where Hegel. Yeah, that's remarkable. Takes up, but that. yeah, it, it's square. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much yeah. for talking about your book and for writing it, and for your piece in the point, and for continuing to work on these issues. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, hey, pleasure was all mine. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to James for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Catholic Laundry. It's a fantastic and fascinating read. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.